0: Hey! Thank you, guys, for having me here. It's an honor to be with you. Uh, I bring you greetings from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, from uh, I'll write somebody. The a Galileo man from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, from the uh, founder and president of G Three, uh, Dr. Josh Bice, uh, our executive vice president Scott Annual, myself from that side as well. From my family, my wife's at home. Uh, taking care of the house and handling things with my our youngest, who's not that young. He's uh, 18, probably needs to get out of the house, but that's a uh, conversation for a different day. Um, that said, again, I'm I'm honored to be here. I'm grateful for the men who took the time and worked with me. I know Daryl was to, supposed to be with me. Um, a lot of things that, that uh, transpired that cost him not to be able to be here, but this was important for me uh, to connect and, and to make... It here, and so uh, the the, the men will tell you. I, I endeavored with the, with the elders, and uh, I just wanted to get here. Wanted to get with you men. Wanted to have an opportunity to talk. I, I love the opportunities like this to speak specifically to men. Uh, I can speak a little bit differently. Uh, I can speak more directly. Uh, I can speak more honestly. Uh, I can speak more clearly uh, in places and spaces where it's just us as guys. And so I'm gonna do that during our time together. I will, I will pull no punches, I will be very direct. Um, my, my hope is that uh, you come away thinking about uh, the subject matter that I cover and perhaps engage in ongoing conversations both with me as well as with, with the uh, pastors here and uh, with one another during the breakouts. I know this first session Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the uh, Apostle Paul and uh, his engagement with culture and what he had to deal with. And uh, I wanted to I wanted to unpack this particular message first. And the reason is this. um, I I thought that it would be good for us um, to consider how to take a stand and what taking a stand looked like as a man, Uh, particularly the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a man's man. And uh, I thought this would be a great example. Plus, it gives me an opportunity to do some expository uh, preaching. Let me let me add this, because I want to I want to set you up for the next three sessions, not just this session, but for the next three sessions. It's okay if I get comfortable and kind of take it, take it slow. They told me I had two hours for this session, so I'm going to take all two. Y'all didn't find that. Um. What I'd like to do in this session is just unpack the text of scripture and provide for us a framework, uh, a standard, if you will, of how to respond to opposition. Uh, As we do that, I want to look at the life of the Apostle Paul in the session that we'll do tonight. It will be different from this session, not that it won't include scripture, but I will cover a, 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 a lot of groundwork. Uh, We're going to be talking about feminism and its push into the church and how it's impacted not only not only evangelicalism, but us as men. I was I was talking with one brother and had mentioned uh, feminism is the default of the culture. Feminism is in the air we breathe. We don't even know and understand how impacted we are by feminism. Uh, until it's so overt we can't mistake it, but there's some more subtle ways that it impacts us that I think we need to take a look at. I want to talk about this in two ways. One will be from the, from the, uh, from the point of view or perspective of the feminist movement, primarily gender theory, queer theory, and all the things that you're seeing invade school systems, families, and the culture, but also infecting us in the church but I also wanna deal with it and address it from a standpoint of what, um, what we've seen as critical race theory uh, and critical theory. And while that topic may seem to be beat up on, may seem to be crystal clear, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna give you a, a timeline, a trajectory, because these things come in cycles and waves. It'll either be the issue of gender theory, queer theory, gay stuff, and then the race stuff takes a back seat. It's, and, and then all of a sudden something happens in the culture, some event takes place, and then the race thing is back on the scene. And then we're dealing with that and we're not talking about the, the issues of gender. So it, it's, it's like this back and forth, this yin and yang. And so I wanna deal with it so that you see all, both of those ideologies through the lens of feminism. And the fact that we've imbibed feminism how we respond to these things is very telling, okay? So again, I know that was a lot to lay on you, but I want you to be prepared for what we're going to do tonight. We are going to cover a lot of ground. Uh, and so I want you to know that'll be more of a, of a, of a talk, a, a, a professorial conversation that I want to have with you, man, and so that you'll be able to identify uh, and, and defend uh, masculinity, biblical masculinity, against some of these things that are, that are attacking That said, um, I I wanted to do another thing here, uh, and and I apologize for just kind of being all over the map. I wanted to, some of you may have no idea, like, why is he here? Like, I'm with you. I'm like, why am I here? Uh, I I have a podcast that's very popular with the Just Thinking podcast. I'm incredibly humbled by um, the response that's been to the Just Thinking podcast with Daryl. And me. It's been amazing to see all across the country folks responding to it and uh, that, that platform opening up doors of opportunity for us to speak. Daryl and I have been saying the same things that we're saying on the podcast for decades. The difference is we're doing it on a platform now that other people are hearing uh, and they appreciate that and for which I'm incredibly grateful. Some of you don't know who or what G3 is. G3, Gospel, Grace, Glory is a conference-based ministry. We have a biennial conference. Some of the men, raise your hand if you came to the G3 conference. Just one of you, two of you, pastor there, anybody else, three or four of you, there there we go. Big conference, I'm the executive director of operations. I simply run it. Uh, I run the conferences, I provide oversight for it. Not that I do that by myself, there's no way for me to handle 8,300 people by myself. Um, But I kind of head up all of the planning and organizing of that. Uh, and then on the back end, I, uh, when we're in the off years, we do smaller conferences around the country. In fact, we will be doing a, a conference uh, in South Lake, uh, Texas. So in your backyard in May, May the 9th through the 11th. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to have some, um, I, I, was, I was just talking, we're going to have some codes. I want you guys to come in for a really reduced price. So I'm going to figure that out tonight and we'll, we'll announce that tomorrow if you're interested in, in attending that. So that's kind of what I do in a nutshell outside of that. I'm the, the husband of Tamika Walker when she claims me. Uh, I am the father of Princess, my oldest daughter, Princeton and Price. And so those are my three kiddos. And so that's, that's a little bit about me. And uh, with that said, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I just give you thanks and praise for who you are. Grateful for these men. Grateful for this unique opportunity to share the truth of your word. Help me to do so with crystal clarity. Uh, help me to do so with great humility. It's not my words, it is your word. Uh, My prayer would be that you would sow your word into the hearts of these men by your spirit, that they would be transformed and changed as a result, and they would have a fantastic impact on their city and on this nation as a result. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you have your copy of God's word, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. If you would, if you would allow me, if you stand for the reading of the Word of God once you got there. This is God's Word, and it reads as follows I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy Strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. You may be seated. If, if you listen, if you listen to the words of Paul, this very section of scripture is it's, it's a it's a man's scripture. This is grown man talk. This isn't, this isn't mamsy-pamsy, feel-goody, watered-down, touchy-feely. No, Paul is, Paul is being very direct, very clear, very masculine as he writes this, pens this letter to the people at the church at Corinth. Many of us have grown acquainted with the names of individuals who, who've been martyred, right, for their faith. We think about Paul. Paul himself was martyred for his faith. I had a chance recently, uh, we just came back, uh, we took a group, G3 took a group of uh, people on the British Reformation tour. Uh, and as we went around and toured the sites of the Reformation, we, we stood in some of the places where men were martyred for the faith. Think about that for just a moment. The idea that men are willing at the cost of their lives to stand firm in the faith. As I sat there, stood there, listened to different speakers talk about the lives of these individuals who lost their lives for the cause and sake of Christ, I was blown away. I I had to take a minute and reflect on my own life, right? What am I willing to stand for? What am I willing to, at, at, at threat of my own life, stand against? What am I willing to, what, what means something to me? If I could kind of think through in my mind, craft a list of, of things that I would be willing to fight you for to the death, what would that look like? As men, I think all of us, at some level, whether it's related to our family and defense of our family... Or whether it's the idea of the, of the defense of, of a belief, of a faith, the faith that we have. What does that look like for us? We have lived in a culture, a society that is, it has embraced the Judeo-Christian ethic. And that's been a wonderful blessing to us, to all of culture, to all of society as a result. But unfortunately for the church, for Christians, we seem to thrive... At the point at which we are under the greatest attack. When things are rosy and wonderful and nice for us, we have a tendency to be soft and, and kind of relaxed and kind of have, have you guys felt this kind of thing happening? And what happens as a result is we witness what's taking place in culture. Culture begins to thrive as they embrace these ideas that are opposite the Christian worldview. Why? Because Christians are. We, we feel good, like nobody's knocking on our door to come drag us out or pull us out of church or, you know, find us in our homes. We, there's no threat of that. There's no threat to going at the corner uh, uh, store or, or, or in, the, in, the, in the country square and declaring, I believe in Christ. There's no fear of being dragged off and, and imprisoned or, or put away. There's no fear of that. And in light of that, men have a tendency... To dial back the intensity you know we, we we may or may not show up to church I mean who, I mean who, who shows up to church I mean Sunday night church like who does that anymore why, why would we why would we spend the time doing Wednesday I mean prayer meeting are we going to pray that long is that I mean seriously I know that you men are here on a on a Friday Saturday because you've committed yourself to the work that's here at the church You're here because you don't want to be that kind of lackadaisical man that kind of relaxes and sits by and lets life happen. Your intent in being here is to take notes, to study hard, to sharpen your sword so that you can be even more effective at articulating the things of God. I believe as we take a look at our text, I think we're going to see that Paul gives us some very clear instruction for what that looks like. I mentioned the Protestant Reformation that I had a chance to go and see some of the different sites of, of those who were martyred. I mentioned the idea that those who were mar- martyred were martyred during the Protestant. We forget that that word is actually protestant. We, we, we were protesting something. We were protesting what was happening in, in Rome and that, the, that doctrines had gotten muddled and absolutely dem- de- de- just really done, done away with justification by faith alone. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Men were willing to suit up and, and even lose their lives for declaring that truth. As I think about that, I think in our day there's some questions that come to mind. I think there's some questions that we need to ask, and the questions sound something like this: Is the Reformation over? Is the Reformation over? Is there any reason for us to, to continue to reform? We, we hear the, 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 the saying, semper reformanda, always be reforming. Is, is, is that over? Is that done? We must ask this question as well. Were, there, were the men of that time in the 16th century different from the men at this time? And if so, how so? Are we as men willing to stand up for what is most important? Are we as men willing to sacrifice our comforts for the sake of our families, our churches, and ultimately for the cause and sake of Christ? I think this is a time, a wonderful time during this retreat to reflect and ask the question, what kind of men are we? What kind of man do we want to be as we leave this place this weekend? If we've examined our lives through the lens of scripture, if we've taken the mirror of God's word and held it up closely to ourselves, how will we be different on Monday morning as a result? The reformers were willing to give of their lives based upon the conviction that the entirety of scripture, all of scripture is inspired by God and useful for instruction, reproof, correction, And training in righteousness. And as we contemplate, even for a brief moment, their historical sacrifice during the 16th century, the emergence of their exceptional sense of dedication, devotion, and commitment should not astonish or surprise us. We shouldn't be blown away or shocked by the fact that men were willing to give their lives. I think this is important to think through. This same devotion, this same sacrifice, this same commitment that originated 15 centuries earlier with those who named the name of Christ. This would be what was exemplified, presented to us through the life of men like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul himself would be martyred in Rome at the hands of the Emperor Nero. It's Paul's example of dealing with this as he addressed the false teachers of his day that I think will inform us well for our time. It'll prepare us as we are subject to all kinds of persecution. In the text, I want you to consider three ideas as we unpack the text. The first idea I want you to consider is Paul's meekness. Paul's meekness in verses one and two. If you're an outline guy, this is kind of this, these are kind of the hangers I'm going to hang my hat on. Verses one and two. We're going to consider Paul's meekness. Paul's meekness. In verses 1 and 2. I'd also like for us to consider Paul's might or the might of Paul's message. The might of Paul's message in verses 3 through 5a. And then finally, I'd like for us to consider Paul's motivation. Paul's motivation in battle. Verse 5b and 6. First, by way of context, let me give a little bit of background. This Corinthian church, which Paul has cherished since its inception. You can see this in Acts chapter 18, verse 11. If you want to write that down, you can see where the the church of Corinth started. Acts chapter 18, verse 11. Okay, yes, sir. Yep. Paul's meekness. Consider Paul's meekness, verses 1 and 2. In verses 3 through 5, I want you to consider the might... Of Paul's message the might of Paul's message in verses 5 and 6 I want you to consider Paul's motivation for battle motivation for battle I mentioned the Corinthian church beginning in Acts 18 verse 11 it's been a source of great passion for Paul passion in the sense of intense affection followed by extreme heartache and suffering Paul experienced both. When I say passion, I mean in, in both extreme senses, great affection, but also extreme heartache and suffering. In Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, Paul addresses the divisions and quarrels that are brought about by celebrity pastoral culture, right? Uh, he would write, well, some, some of you say you follow Paul, some follow Apollo, some follow Cephas, I follow Christ. He even said, I'm glad I, I hadn't baptized any one of you, but, 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 but just, you know, just a few of you. Why? So that you can can attribute to me some, some celebrity idea. That's not what we're doing here. In addition, Corinth was filled with false teachers who challenged Paul's authority as an apostle. Paul would later give these false teachers the name super apostles. This was not meant as a compliment. Paul also addressed the sexual immorality of the church and numerous errors, the numerous errors of Corinthian worship. After his initial letter and a brief visit, Paul leaves Corinth, sparing the church another visit. Paul chooses instead to write a letter known as the tearful letter. Now, we don't, we don't have the tearful letter, but it is referenced in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul writes, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, after receiving a report from Titus that the painful letter had produced repentance, you can see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes the letter we're reading, 2 Corinthians. He does so to assure the church of his love for them, but also to continue to address the error. And finally, Paul turns to respond to the false teachers who stand by at the ready to advance their cause at first opportunity. So the section that we're reading chapters 10 really 10 through 13 are are really a a letter that yes Paul is writing to to everyone in in the church of Corinth everyone would hear this read but Paul's audience specifically from chapters 10 11 12 and, and even even toward the end there is is aimed very directly at the false teachers who are sitting in the crowd he knows that they're in the room listening. As you read this section of scripture, you'll be struck, I think, by the combination of Paul's boldness with great humility. I mentioned this up front. This, this, Paul is not writing some mamsy, pamsy feel-goody, I'm nervous that I'll offend someone type of letter here. He's writing with great boldness. Meekness, yes, but boldness nonetheless. Let's read it again. Verses one and two. I, Paul, myself entreat you. How? By the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. There's a lot of things that Paul is doing there. He's using their own arguments. They're all saying this about him and he knows it. And so he's unafraid to say it. Oh, you're talking about me. Yeah, you're saying that I'm, I'm really bold when I'm away, but, but when I get in front of you, I'm, I'm really weak, right? Okay, I hear what you're saying. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some of you who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. This is Paul, who although he has the authority of an apostle, he appeals to his enemies, the false teachers who wish to discredit him. The charge that they brought to Paul was that his his this diminutive, unimpressive, seemingly soft spoken, only showing boldness when he was far away guy who was writing letters. They they say the second Corinthians 1010. Paul uses the, the charge and flips it. I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am bold when I'm away. Right. Meek when I'm up close. Paul mentions this same meekness, though. He, he addresses them with meekness. He begins by opening with meekness, which is different from weakness. When writing to the church at Philippi, Paul would say this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death and death on a cross. Meekness in this sense is not weakness, but rather a willingness to accept or submit to the providential will of God. Sadly, far too many in the church today believe meekness should look more like weakness. I've dealt with this from time to time. If you do any evangelism out in the street corners, I've done my fair share of that. I'm used to, I'm accustomed to the passerby who is driving their car. They see me and they they tell me I'm number one, right? Using their fingers, but it's not the number one finger. You know what I'm talking about? I'm used to that. Few of them are bold enough to get out of the car and come talk to you, right? Because they know, A, they're going to find someone who's gentle, but direct and very specific about. If you're on a street corner, but I I should say this gently. My hope would be, that's what I should say. If you're on a street corner proclaiming the truth of God, that you have a knowledge of apologetics to the degree that you're able to properly uh, engage other people. Uh, my hope would be that, that you're connected to a local church where elders are providing oversight for you long before you get out on that street corner. We've got a lot of yahoo's who are camming up and putting their cameras on and going and starting a, a, you know, an issue just for the sake of building a brand or building a platform. That's definitely not something we want to do. But needless to say, the greatest pushback that I would ever receive when I was out there wasn't necessarily from the angry atheist. I could deal with them. It was the 40-year-old mother of two kids who would, would see us out there, get enraged, go park her car, leave her kids in the car, come out to find us and begin screaming at us about how we were doing it wrong. You're doing this wrong! You can't be like... You can't say it this way. You, you're doing this wrong. I'm thinking, what... What do you think we're doing? And if there's a right way to do it, I'm all ears. I want to hear what that right way is. Show me that way. The pushback was normally from someone who named the, or claimed to name the name of Christ. You'll hear that example again when I talk about the feminism piece. Many want meekness to look like weakness. But that is not at all what we're encouraged to do. Our day requires a demonstration of Christian conviction, much like the conviction of those whose lives we're learning about, where followers of Christ are equipped with God's word and are ready when necessary to sacrifice for what we believe. Here in the text, however, Paul is not backing down. He's not accepting retreat. He's simply demonstrating what it looks like to take a stand that is empowered by meekness. This is an important characteristic for us to think through and about. I, Paul, myself entreat you. Well, how? Well, he does so by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And and this is the charge. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away, that's the charge. Well, here, I'm standing right here. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. As believers, we may be able to entreat or engage or beseech someone. We may be able to do so with meekness or gentleness. But often we find it difficult to take a stand. Has that been you? Have you ever found it difficult, even in a, a situation where you know what God's word says about an issue or a subject, kind of nervous about declaring that truth? Be honest with yourself. Think through that process. Why is that? Is it the fear of man? Some would say yes. I had a dear brother who, when I, uh, I tried, was doing some evangelism he said, brother, why don't you say what you need to say? I said, well, you know, and my default was the fear of man. I you know, just fear man. He looked at me straight in my face as a man and said, well, why don't you fear God more than you fear man? It's, it's time for us as men to build a healthy fear of the Lord. Why do we as Christians find it difficult to take a stand? Well, in his book, A Body of Divinity, the Puritan preacher Thomas Watson writes this, quote, A Christian is a military person. Listen to this. A Christian is a military person. He fights the Lord's battles. He is Christ's ensign bearer. Now, though he endures a hard fate and the bullets fly about, he fights for a crown. End quote. English author John Fox would write this, quote, princes, kings, and other rulers of the world have used all of their strength and cunning against the church, yet it continues to endure and hold its own, end quote. In his commentary on, on this very section of scripture, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, John, Cal- John Calvin writes this, quote, the life of a Christian, it is true, is a perpetual warfare. I, I, as men, as, as grown men in this room, I want you to get that we are in a war. We're warring against our flesh. We're warring against our, our, the carnal nature on the inside of us. You want to talk about spiritual warfare? That's the spiritual warfare that you're engaged in on a daily basis to ensure that, that you submit yourself to the glory of God and to the word of God. We're in a war against a culture that desires to see perversion. And not only invade our streets and invade our schools, but enter into our pulpits as well. We're going to talk about that this evening. He says this. Let me finish the quote. John Calvin writes, quote, the life of a Christian, it is true, is a perpetual warfare. For whoever gives himself to the service of God will have no truce from Satan at any time, but will be harassed with incessant disquietude. That man, therefore, is mistaken who girds himself for the discharge of this office and is not at the same time furnished with the courage and bravery for contending. For he is not exercised otherwise than in fighting. For we must take this into account that the gospel, listen closely, man, that the gospel is like a fire by which the fury of Satan is enkindled, end quote. Many Christians are afraid to stand. We fear what others might think, but the Bible is replete with warnings of hatred and persecution that would endure those who follow Christ. John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life In Christ Jesus will be persecuted. First John chapter three, verse thirteen. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Philippians chapter one, verse twenty-nine, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Think about this as as a gospel proclamation. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to suffer for the cause and sake of Christ? Repent of your sins, place your faith in the finished work of Christ, and and, and come and and grab your cross and follow Christ. That's our message to the world. We've considered Paul's meekness. Let's consider Paul's might. Paul's might, verse 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5a. through 5a. Now, during the days of Martin Luther, John Calvin, and John Knox, the war that they engaged in, they were engaged in a battle to reclaim the basic truths of the gospel. They were, they were reclaiming things like justification... By grace through faith. How did they retrieve that truth? Well, they did so by, first of all, holding tightly to the scripture. It was Martin Luther who's credited with saying this, quote, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. End quote. Do we think of the word of God in such ways, men? Do we think of and come to scripture with that kind of resolve that this is God's word, it lays hold of me, it grabs after me, it shapes me, it forms me. This is the idea that, that Luther is trying to express. It was John Knox who said this, quote, we believe and confess that these books of the Bible are canonical, that they are the infallible rule of faith and practice. Every aspect of his life, this John Knox start, started the, the, the Scottish Reformation. Presbyterian preacher. Desired to live his whole life really reflected throughout as it relates to what God's word had to say about the issue. Today, however, there's a battle being waged against the scripture. While the battle in our day looks different than in the days of Knox and Calvin, they are no less dangerous today than they were in their day. That truth could not be more apparent than even recently. More recently, there was a conference that was held at North Point Community Church in my home state of Georgia. Pastor Andy Stanley defined the objective of a conference that he had uh, there at his church. The conference was a place for parents of LGBTQIA plus children and for ministry leaders looking to discover ways to support parents and children of their churches. This conference featured gay affirming speakers and teachers who sought to teach parents to remain connected to their same-sex attracted children through affirming their identities. This is one of the things that, that you've got to think through um, I, I, I butcher this quote every time. It's Charles Spurgeon, who, when he talks about the, the, the issue of discernment, says that, that, that knowing the, the difference in, in discernment is not knowing what's right and wrong. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. Well, he almost gets this right. Stanley almost gets this right. The conference featured gay affirming speech, speakers and teachers. That's wrong. Who sought to teach parents to remain connected to their same-sex attracted children. That's right. But the way that they're going to do this is through affirming their identities. If they were affirming the fact that they are children of God, that they are created in the image of God, that's one thing. But if they're going to affirm them on the basis of their deformed sexuality, then we have a problem. This conference is not a symptom of a problem, but rather the manifestation of a direct intention by Stanley, who has one of the largest multi-campus churches in the country. As it pertains to a new view of biblical teaching on sexuality, Stanley states this: that he embraces a form of Christianity that, listen to this quote, draws circles of inclusion rather than one that draws lines. End quote. To the uninformed believer in Stanley's church. ...who has spent the past few years unhitching themselves from the Old Testament. This new ethic is is the planned next step in a direction that leads to destruction. Andy Stanley is a wolf who has come out of the closet. But he's not alone. Following the Dobbs verdict, which ended the constitutional protection of abortion... ...many pastors raced to their pulpits to deliver messages, many of which were in complete opposition to a biblical worldview on abortion. On the Sunday after the Supreme Court decision, Jamal Bryant, he's a black pastor in my home state of Georgia, senior pastor of New Birth, listen to this, New Birth Missionary Baptist Church. It's it's an ironic name given what he's actually going to say. Right after the Dobbs decision, he raced to the pulpit to say this, quote, this week, America has turned its has turned back the hands of time and has declared war on women in this nation. I want us to stand to say to this nation that if America were authentically pro life, then they would immediately abolish the death penalty. If they were really pro life, they would put more money into Head Start programs. If they were really pro life, they would seek to cure the opiate addiction in this nation. If they were really pro life, they would make sure that teachers felt safe in their schools. If they were really pro-life, there would be stricter measures regarding gun control in this nation, end quote. What's really problematic is that Bryant said all of this on a Lord's Day service without fear of men racing to the pulpit and snatching him out of it. That's what actually should have taken place. Had men been in the room to hear this heretical teaching. Jamal Bryant would continue to speak about this, but he he uses the language of war. Have you noticed this? They declared war on women in this nation. While men of God who understand the word of God sheepishly kind of are nervous about whether to say the right kinds of things. Men who are saying the wrong things are empowered emboldened on the Lord's Day. To step into the pulpit and say these kinds of things. It's time for us as men to stand up. Amen. Jamal Bryant would continue this service which ironically concluded or included, get this, baby dedications. Right after he said this, you can see this on video on YouTube. Right after he said this, there's a line of babies being dedicated. What we're witnessing here is a modern day super apostle. Saying what needs to be said to captivate a crowd who has itching ears and have assembled themselves teachers willing to say what they want to hear. There's much more that can be said about Jamal Bryant's statement. However, I want to do what our text says. Our text says that we have a responsibility to destroy arguments and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God. So let's take a moment to do that. It has to be said that it is false to argue that a consistent pro-life position would be against both abortion and the death penalty. The pro-life position understands that the death penalty adjudicates the most brutal of murderous acts. Pro-life proponents advocate for the death penalty for convicted murderers because of the high value that we place on innocent human Life. This position is not a new idea. It dates back to the Old Testament. Leviticus 24, 17 says, Whoever takes the human life surely shall be put to death. Furthermore, the baby in the womb has committed no crime worthy of death. Final area that, I, that I, I'll, I'll touch on is just this area of racial idolatry racial idolatry just for the sake of time I won't go into it here because I'll I'll revisit this conversation at a later time but it's important for us to note that as we examine these things for those of us in this room it's easy for us to hear these ideas and desire to wage war according to the flesh but Paul admonishes us in verse 3 he says this look at your text For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. The type of battle that we're engaged in does not resemble that of our adversaries. We see this in scripture time and time again. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 15 and 16. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. And then Peter explains that we are to do this with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior may be put to shame. Look back at our text, verses 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Here, Paul employs the idea that the weapons that we have are weapons given by God. And those weapons have divine power. Power to destroy strongholds. The question, men, is this. Do we believe that to be true? As I look around evangelicalism, I see men who want to grab every other weapon besides the word of God. They're willing to embrace CRT. They're willing to embrace social justice. They're willing to embrace all of these man-made ideologies in an effort to right the wrongs that they see in culture. Rather than standing... ...on the truth of the word of God. They don't believe that the weapons that were given have divine power. The idea that a stronghold in the, in the first century, the idea that a stronghold could be destroyed... ...was unimaginable for those reading the words of Paul. A stronghold was a high fortification intended to be unscalable and impenetrable. While the strongholds of a city may be difficult to scale... Paul himself experienced the divine power of God to destroy strongholds firsthand. You you remember in in, in Acts chapter 9, he is still breathing fiery rage against the people of God. He's he's, he's collecting the, the letters that he needs to go gather up believers and to imprison them. And as he's on his way, he encounters Christ himself, the very living word of God. And the stronghold that was in his mind is absolutely destroyed in an instant. In an instant. Once he goes through a process and regains his sight, he is preaching Christ as Lord. Men, we have the word of God. It is a weapon with divine power to destroy strongholds we need to know it and we need to use it as I think about this the question for us as believers is, do we believe God's word has that kind of power? Well, the writer of Hebrews explains the word of God this way. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Is the word of God that transforms it's the human heart. It's the word of God that revises the minds of men. The word of God restores the soul. The word of God renews one's life. In Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19, the word of God is our anchor. In Psalm 130 verse 5, the word of God is our hope. In Psalm 119 verse 62, the word of God is our joy. In Psalm 119 105, the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In Ephesians 6 17, the word of God is a sword. In Proverbs 30, verse 5, the word of God is flawless. In Proverbs 19, verse 7, the word of God is wisdom. Matthew 4, 4, the word of God sustains you. In Luke 1, chapter 1, verse 37, the word of God will never fail. David would write that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing, rejoicing. The heart, the command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. If we understand the power and might of Paul's message, which is the word of God, we can trust its power to destroy the strongholds of every human heart. We've considered Paul's meekness. We've considered the might of Paul's message. Let's finally and very briefly consider Paul's motivation. Reads this way in verse 5b and 6. And take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul's motivation here is not destructive. It's not the destructive force that comes with war, which is death. Instead, his desire here is even for his enemies to repent and to obey Christ. Paul doesn't wish for the destruction, the destructive end to his enemies. Paul doesn't desire the, temp, doesn't desire the temporal or eternal end of his enemies, and neither should we. Have you seen the kind of, the kind of angry uh, uh, warrior of Christ who's just angry at everybody and just wants everybody, just, just wants judgment, wants to call down fire from heaven and burn everybody up? That may have been you at one time the reality is we need to have that intensity but it needs to be tempered with understanding were it not for God's grace that would be me as a result we function differently we engage differently we don't wish the destructive end to our enemies we wish for their repentance we wish that they would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ repent of their sins and place their full faith in him neither bombs nor bullets can transform a human heart. Now, bombs or bullets may stop a human heart, but it has no power to transform the human heart. It has no power of seeing a murderous rebel transform into a gospel-proclaiming warrior for truth. We need to trust the word of God to do its work. We need men in this hour, like Paul, who function in meekness, who understand the might of our message. We need men and women who are motivated by obedience to Christ. The words of the great hymn by Martin Luther give rise to thoughts here. In the third verse of A Mighty Fortress written in 1529, Luther writes this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grinned. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. We should recognize that we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. As we stand for the, one, for the once for all delivered to the saints faith. We do this for the sake of the gospel man. Not for vain glory of our own. We do this for the truths that were that were testified to: sola gratia, sola fide, sola scriptura, solus Christus, soli Deo Gloria, His glory alone. Second Corinthians ten four through six: the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks and praise for your word. We're grateful for these truths. My prayer would be that you would sow them deeply into the heart of these men who are here. That they would be transformed by the renewing of their mind. That they would let the word of God be the mirror to their soul. That they would adjust and shift and shift and change what needs to be changed that they would repent of, of sin that holds them back from declaring the truth of your word with great boldness and clarity in the same way that Paul did I pray Lord God that we would act like men and be strong and courageous in the face of a world that is ever darkening and needs the light of the gospel we ask this in Christ's name then